We are now into a new time. In reflection of Advent, we are doing something that's going to feel a little bit, a little bit different to some of you. The series uh, that we're beginning this week, I'm calling Seeing Salvation. And in the next four weeks, I would like for this time now to feel like an inhale and an exhale. Amidst the lists that you have of things to do and gifts to buy for and things to organize, I would love for you to come into this space and to feel like you can just sit and be and remember the wonder of the story, the story of a God who became a human being and was born in a major. So the way that we're going to do this is there's not going to be a regular sermon. What there is going to be is a, a scripture reading and then a reflection on a painting that relates to that scripture. And after you've had some time to reflect and quiet on that, two people are going to come up who've spent some time with those scriptures and that painting. They've been asked a few weeks ahead to just reflect and see what detail of the painting we're going to be looking at speaks to them. How is God speaking to them through that art? And this is just as spiritual as a sermon. Wendy, Sister Wendy Beckett says this, looking at art is one way of listening to God. The leisure and the stillness required to just sit and look at a painting for a while is the same posture, I think, required of us when we pray, when we sit in humble stillness before God. So it's just as spiritual as a sermon, just a different way of receiving the information. It's just as theological, in a way, as a sermon, but it's doctrinal truth morphed into relational reality. It's something that speaks to a different part of our brain as we listen to the scripture and look at the picture. So no sermon from me, but hopefully an encounter with God. And there are some of you, I think, that are going to love this so much, you're going to be sad when the next four weeks are over. And there are some of you that are going to be glad when December's done. And that's okay. You need to know that there'll be an end to it. But I hope that some of you at least will be surprised at what you find. When you watch the painting, you will be perhaps captured by a different detail. And that detail might not be the same one that, that our two uh, friends are going to be sharing. And that's okay. Because God's word speaks a number of ways to any number of people. So here's how it will go. I will pray, actually we will pray together, and then Archie will come and read the scripture, and then we'll hear, and then we'll reflect on the picture, and then we'll hear from two people in the community share their reflections. And if there is time, I suspect there might not be today, but in the weeks to come, if there is time, we might bring the mic around to have some of you share your own thoughts as well. So today, what we have before us is Mary's encounter with the angel Gabriel. And we'll listen to the scriptures both in Isaiah and Luke that foretell of Jesus' coming and that describe Mary and Gabriel's interaction. And then we'll reflect on a painting called Annunciation by an Italian painter, Sandro Botticelli, that was painted in 1489. 
So to pray, what I'd like to ask us to do is to actually sing that song that, that I get us to sing sometimes. Open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus, because that is indeed what we want to do. And so, friends, I invite you to stand just for this prayer part, and then you can have a seat afterwards in order to listen to the scripture. But as we stand, let's sing this song and make these words our prayer of attentiveness to God. Open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus, to reach out and touch him, and say that we love him. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to listen, open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus, amen. You may have a seat. Good morning. A green shoot will sprout from Jesse's stump, from his roots a budding branch. The life-giving Spirit of God will hover over him, the Spirit that brings wisdom and understanding, the Spirit that gives direction and builds strength, the Spirit that instills knowledge and fear of God. Fear of God will be all his joy and delight. He won't judge by appearances, won't decide on the basis of hearsay. He'll judge the needy by what is right, render decisions on earth's poor with justice. His words will bring everyone to odd attention. A mere breath from his lips will topple the wicked. Each morning, he'll pull on sturdy work clothes and boots and build righteousness and faithfulness in the land. The wolf will romp with the lamb. The leopard sleep with the kid. Calf and lion will eat from the same trough. A little child will tend them. Cow and bear will graze the same pasture. Their cows and cubs grow up together, and the lion eats straw like the ox. A nursing child will crawl over rattlesnake dens. A toddler stick his hand down the hole of a serpent. Neither animal nor human will hurt or kill on my holy mountain. The whole earth will be brimming with knowing God alive, a living knowledge of God, ocean deep, ocean wide. And from Luke. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to the Galilean village of Nazareth to a virgin who was engaged to be married to a man descended from David. His name was Joseph, and the virgin's name 
Mary. Upon entering, Gabriel greeted her. Good morning. You're beautiful with God's beauty. Beautiful inside and out. God be with you. She was thoroughly shaken, wondering what was behind a greeting like this. But the angel assured her, Mary, you have nothing to fear. God has a surprise for you. You'll become pregnant and give birth to a son and will call his name Jesus. He will be great. Be called Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will rule over Jacob's house forever. No end ever to his kingdom. Mary said to the angel, but how? I've never slept with a man. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will hover over you. Therefore, the child you bring to birth will be called Holy Son of God. And did you know that your cousin Elizabeth conceived a son? How old as she is? Everyone called her barren. And here she is, six months pregnant. Nothing, you see, is impossible with God. And Mary said, Yes, I see it all now. I'm the Lord's maid, ready to serve. Let it be with me just as you've said. And then the angel left her.
And so I'd like to invite John Wright to come. John is our first responder. Um, let me go grab that mic. Or John, yeah, why don't you go ahead and grab that mic from, from Archie. So thank you, John, for being willing to reflect on this painting and hear your reflections. Um, so I, I actually don't resonate with this painting a whole lot, <laughs> which, is, which is fine, I think. Um, there's only one thing in it that I feel I understand uh, really well on a kind of visceral level, and that's the, the gap between the hands in the center of the painting. Um, for context, in case you're confused, I was at first. Uh, that's Mary uh, on the right there. Uh, and the angel Gabriel kneels on the left and shares with her the news that she's going to be the mother of Christ. Um, she's inexplicably in contemporary clothes. So, you know, if it were painted now, she'd have like Lululemon pants on or something, and she's white inexplicably. She would not have been white. And it's also inexplicably in Europe, and she has a halo, and Gabriel has wings, and she's doing this sort of um, weird dance thing, um, all of which, honestly, I find a little alienating when I look at it. Um, but the gap between her hands is something I feel I understand, uh, and something that's actually been really painful for me uh, over the past five years or so. Um, and so I've, I've wanted something very badly uh, ever since I was a child, uh, which was to be a writer. So I wrote a lot, and I imagined a lot when I was young. Uh, and as I grew older, I started writing short stories. And then when I was 21, I, I started writing a novel, uh, which at the time was about a man in an ancient city who finds and raises a child left for dead. Uh, and there was also a genie. Um, and it was called The Genie and Said, uh, and I didn't get to The Genie. Uh, I wrote about 25 pages, uh, um, and The Genie was supposed to represent God somehow. Um, but it was when I was 21 that I first felt God saying to me that being a writer, being a novelist, uh, was something that he wanted for me. Um, so he wanted what I wanted, uh, or, or I thought so. So I continued to write. I kind of dipped in and out for years, and there were long stretches of time that I, I didn't make space for it. Uh, and then about five years ago or so, I started on a novel. Uh, this novel started again that I'd begun when I was 21, uh, and it was extremely hard emotionally for me. Uh, it might be a little difficult to understand, um, but I'll do my best to explain. Uh, the hardest part was time. I had a goal, and the goal was what mattered to me. And I was a lawyer by then, and I didn't have a lot of time to work to reach my goal. And so there was this almost physical pain when I had to stop. Um, and, and what's, I think, interesting and also important for this story is that it wasn't painful because I found this process joyful. Um, and I really, you know, wanted to do more of it because uh, I enjoyed the thing. Um, a lot of the time, maybe even most of the time, I hated it, uh, which I'll explain. But I was so focused on the goal to be a writer, 
uh, and the feeling that I couldn't make progress toward that goal felt, felt terrible. Uh, and the second thing, which I think almost anyone here who's ever tried art can probably resonate with, uh, is that I'd write and I'd be very excited. I'd think I was amazing. You know, the next Salman Rushdie or C.S. Lewis, uh, and then the next day I'd, I'd read what I had written, and it was so bad. Like, it was so, so bad. Um, and I'd go through these cycles of ecstasy and despair, um, and the despair would last much, much longer. Uh, and I was very hard on myself. And honestly, it's impossible to enjoy making art when you have that kind of fear and self-criticism, uh, especially to the extent that I did. And the third thing was that I was, for the most part, uh, alone in the project. So I wasn't, I wasn't trained to write. Uh, I had lots of people who read my story, and they gave me a lot of help, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, but there was no one that was you know, professional. Uh, there was no one in my corner who looked at my stuff and said, John, you really have potential. Uh, I can see something really great in this and help you get where you want to go, that kind of thing. Um, I'd never taken a course on novel writing. Every advance I made in writing was by luck and by experiment or by reading other novelists that I enjoyed and, and um, admired and seeing what worked for me. So... Between when I restarted my novel and now, I, I actually began my own law firm. Um, and so I still didn't have a lot of time, but I actually had more time now because um, I could build my schedule how I wanted. And in the midst of this, there was God. And when I'd pray about it, I'd feel God saying that he was going to do something good with this novel. Um, I'd feel it very strongly, or I, I think I did, and others affirmed it too. And so eventually I learned how to write a novel this novel, which is about a man in ancient Sumer, uh, which is, for those who don't know, uh, where Abraham lived before he left for Canaan. And he finds a child, and then years later, he has to search for the boy through the desert uh, when he runs away to Sheol, which is, which is the grave, or death. And it's called the Adigna, uh, which is the name of the river that they, they cross to travel to the grave. Uh, and in May of this past year, I finished it. I finished the novel, and then it got harder. Um, this is all very still, like, yeah, wrestling with this. Um, the only way to get published is to have an agent. Um, and the only way to have an agent is to cold query them, which is like cold calling. Uh, except by email, and you send them a cover letter and an excerpt, and you, you really hope that your email sticks out from the 300 or so that they received that week. Um, and as the silence and the nose kind of rolled in, I'm just going to take a moment. As the nose rolled in, I, start, I started to entrench. And I got very bitter and very angry at God. Um, and I looked at what I, I felt was the promises that he'd made to me. Uh, and I, I'd start to accuse him of lying. And I, I believed what I said. I believed what I said to him. Um, and it's a fact that querying takes a long time. It's been six months for me, but sometimes it takes years, even for successful writers. Um, I read a story recently about James Joyce having about seven years before he had a short story collection finally find a home. Um, 
Even then, I'd say to God, if you wanted something to happen to this, then you'd make it happen. Or if you want this, then, then when, God? Uh, and he didn't. He didn't make it happen, and he still hasn't to this day. And so that's the gap right there between Mary's hand and Gabriel's hand, Gabriel. Um, and I doubt that when Gabriel came to Mary that he had wings. I doubt that he glowed. Uh, you know what I mean? Maybe it was a dream even. I believe this because I've never heard of a revelation from God that didn't involve faith. And the wings are, are a bit of a giveaway, right? Probably no wings. And when Mary had the baby, um, the little Christ, uh, he would have cried and pooped and gotten sick and not really acted like a god at all. Um, and when he grew up, and it's not in the Bible, Mary's reaction, um, but I think I can be fairly certain of this, uh, he, he would have said things to her and done things around her that would have terrified her. Um, not least that he was going to die early uh, to give up his life, her son, her baby, giving up his life, um, but also maybe his choice to leave carpentry, a steady job, uh, to wander and preach, or how he spoke about poverty and pain in a very positive way for negative things, or who he spent his time with. Um, and so there's this promise from Gabriel's hand, and then a gap, and then Mary's hand, uh, and they don't touch. And life is in between the two hands in the empty space. Um, so I'm still querying very, very slowly, about one a week instead of I think it was 15 a week at one point, or maybe 10. Uh, and at the same time, I'm actually writing my second novel. And if writing the first was hell, for the reasons I said already, uh, this one isn't. And for the second novel, I can honestly say that I'm really enjoying the writing, just to write, uh, creating and exploring and breathing life into my characters and watching the characters uh, surprise me, um, which actually weirdly happens when the characters you write start to come alive in your head. Um, but God gave no promises about this novel, this new one. It's the old one that's weighed down by my expectations of God and what he said to me, uh, and it still is. So I haven't stopped wanting to be a novelist, um, but uh, and this is fairly bleak. I suspect that even if I were to be exactly what I wanted to be, even if I had my goal in my hands, I wouldn't get to touch Gabriel's hand. I suspect that the present is never quite one with the promise, at least uh, my understanding of the promise. So there will be always be my hand on one side and God's promise on the other, and that gap right there in between. Thank you, John, for your tenderness and for your honesty and for the way that you told that story that allowed us all to enter in and to know those gaps that we can all point to. Lynn, come on and share us with us your own reflections on what you see in this painting. Um, so like you, John, when I um, first opened this, I went, oh. Um, it didn't just sort of jump out at me and go, oh, fantastic, this is exactly, you know, the one I wanted to look at. I'm not a huge fan of the Italian Renaissance, and this is what this is. 
Um, a little bit more background, it was painted as an altarpiece for uh, a Florentine uh, monastery. And to my understanding, it's there to there today. So what, um, so my first reaction was, as I said, sort of, oh no. But as I've, because um, I'm like, again, like I, that it's a city th thing, that it's the way it's painted in, in terms of the culture of the day, it kind of throws you off a little bit. But what I ended up doing in my, as I started to process through this, I actually kind of really like it over time, got to really like it over time. And um, what strikes me and what I started to really looking at is the positions of Gabriel and of Mary. In my mind, most pictures I have thought of or even haven't think of in my mind or even have seen, usually Gabriel is really big and really white and hovering, right? And Mary is very small uh, and seated and sort of subservient. That's sort of the image that I generally have when I think of the Annunciation. But this is not that. Um, in this painting, it seems to me, Mary is in the more dominant position and Gabriel is in the more subservient position. Um, and the other thing that's in this is that it almost feels to me like Gabriel is almost like pleading, right? The way his hand is, like he's down and looking up at her in a, a more of a pleading kind of position, which makes me start to think that Gabriel understands that actually Mary is going to be way more important than he is over time, that Mary's going to be more important. But also, take a look at her legs and her position. To me, the lower half of her body is leaning away from Gabriel, and the upper half is leaning more toward. Her right hand is reaching out toward Gabriel's hand, but her left hand is kind of pulling back. So that's sort of I, that's where I sort of focus my my looking at. So what I, what this means it's sort of like there's a push and pull, right? That she's leaning in and she's pulling back. And one of the things we don't get when we read scripture is how long this took. You get this feeling that you know Gabriel arrived, Mary said yes, on we go. Like it happened really fast, but we don't know that. And I get this feeling that there's sort of this dynamic going on. And whether, whether, how long did this process take? We really have no idea. Um, so the picture makes me think that maybe Mary has a choice, right? We get this sense uh, when we're reading. Yes, we know that she's, um, she says, some translations confused and disturbed or shaken and wondering. But we never get the sense that she actually had a choice. We always sort of think just sort of meek obedience. I just do it, right? Um, but yet I get the feeling that she's really thinking about this long and hard and not just acquiescing really quickly. Um, right, so the next sort of piece in this is um, one of the questions we were asked to think about is, does the artwork speak to me in my own life right now? So uh, I go to this exercise clinic a couple times a week, and every week they have a quote of the week. And most of the time I roll my eyes, like, just like, are you kidding me? 
um, with some of the quotes. But this one was a couple of weeks ago by Brene Brown, who seems to be everywhere these days. And the quote is, you can choose courage or you can choose comfort, but you can't choose both. So I'm not 100% sure I even agree with that, but it really struck me. Can't choose both. And the truth is um, that I think we get, we all have enunciations in our lives. There's always some time when there's some opportunity, something is presented to us. Uh, and the truth is when I was younger, I just took them. <laughs> I didn't think about it as much. Often it just sort of jumped into things. Um, and um, now that I'm older, <laughs> Um, my that youthful desire to do big things and change the world and um, step out into the unknown has been replaced by a desire to live quite a simple life <laughs> uh, and live out a very simple faith, to sort of live a comfortable life. And um, I don't know if you get this experience, but people will often say to me now that I'm retired, oh, you deserve it. Really? Um, you know, you've lived a, a life that's taken cur courage in many ways. And some, to some degree, that's true. But so you deserve comfort. And I'm kind of going, do I? Is that true? So I'm, I guess the wonder I'm, that I'm living with right now is, is it okay to desire, <laughs> desire a simple, comfortable life now? Uh, or do I need to continue to try to live to seek to, seek to live courageously? Uh, and can I choose both comfort? Is it possible to choose both comfort and courage? So there's um, a poem by a woman named uh, Denise Levertov, and I don't, if you have a chance, read it. It's called The Annunciation. But she writes this. She says, aren't there annunciations of one sort or another in most lives? Some unwillingly undertake great destinies and act them with a sullen, in sullen pride, uncomprehending. More often, those moments when roads of light and storm open from darkness in a man or a woman are turned away from in dread, in a wave of weakness, in despair, and with relief. Ordinary lives continue. God does not smite them, but the gates close. The pathway vanishes. So, it's, I, so I guess the piece that comes through for me is the courage that Mary had to have. It's not just meek obedience. It's a step of courage uh, into something that was unknown for her. So this has sort of been resonating with me, <laughs> me lately. Can I continue in life to choose the courageous things to do? Um, and I don't know necessarily what those will be. So the under, other thing that Kim asked us to think about was, do we have any sort of sense of, of any word for our community? And... I'm not so sure, but I'm not, but let me just say this. I don't think a church uh, can or should choose a comfortable life. Uh, it seems to me that churches need to live into this push and pull that we see here. The push and pull of, of scripture and of culture. Uh, the push and pull of tradition and of change. The push of pull and pull of trying to make everybody happy or nobody happy. So I think we have to live into this place of courage. Um, I'm not sure we should just be choosing comfortable life, even though that's deeply what I want most days of my existence.
So as Julie comes now to lead us in some carols, I invite you to take a moment, just even with this painting now, how does it speak to you? What might God be saying to you this morning? <laughs> 